got a lot to say about the world I occupy every day. But when I say what's on my mind, I find I piss people off. You're listening to What the Folk, real talk and raw tunes for revelationary times. I'm Joy Damiani. I'm Sarah Baranowskis. And on this episode of What the Folk, our guest is Michael McPherson, the executive director of online news publication, The South Seattle Emerald, the former executive director of Veterans for Peace, and a longtime activist for racial and social justice within and outside the U.S. I do think that in order to work for peace, you have to work on yourself, you know, and you have to um, actually be courageous because it's hard working on yourself. And sometimes when you look in the mirror, when you're looking at yourself, you see some stuff, you're like, oh, no, that can't be me. But guess what? It is. But first, if you love what you've been hearing on What the Folk, please do let us know. All you have to do is drop a five-star review or a rating or, you know, you can even email us at whatthefolkpod at gmail.com and uh, we'll probably reply to you. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, thanks for sticking with us. It's now been a couple of years, and we really appreciate you all out there listening. So um, if you have comments, questions, concerns, um, or just nice things to say, please let us know. Um, and now, here we go, jumping in with Michael McPherson. So without further ado, here we are here with Michael McPherson, who is a longtime friend of mine, an anti-war veteran, former director of Veterans for Peace, and now based in Seattle, doing some really great work in a newspaper up there, which I will let him talk about. Welcome, Michael. Welcome to What the Folk. Thank you. Thank you for having me. On this um, on this wonderful daylight savings day, yeah, <laughs> that has thrown Lost an hour that has thrown all of our body clocks off. I feel like it's appropriate an appropriate time to throw our first very difficult question at you. I hope you're ready, Michael. How is your apocalypse going? <laughs> My apocalypse? Yes. Um, I don't. I guess maybe I don't look at. Uh, everything that's happening that badly as being an apocalypse. I, yeah, so my apocalypse <laughs> is going okay because, <laughs> you know, I mean, right now is is obviously, maybe it's not obvious to everyone, but it, it is very different. I'm 58, be 59 soon. I can't say, and that's a long time and it's not, right? Yeah. Um, um, but during this time, of my life. I haven't seen anything quite like this, but, um, and when I say this, of course, COVID, I mean, this a hundred years ago. So that's one thing, <laughs> but just the politics of our country right now and the division and the, um, rise of white supremacy and, um, patriarchy and just everything negative. Um, you know, it's always been there. It's been simmering, but I can't say I've seen it rise like it is now. Um, but, you know, I look at history and I think about my ancestors um, and they've gone through worse. They went through worse. 
Uh, I think the only thing we have that's worse is climate change as a challenge that we need to face um, that they certainly didn't. And uh, war, and, and they had war, but just the possible outcomes, you know, nuclear annihilation, right? So those two things. But on a day-to-day life basis, like my life is wonderful compared to my ancestors, you know? So when I look at that um, and the sacrifices they made so I could be on this show with you right now, mm-hmm. you know, I can't, I can't really put things in the category of apocalypse. And in fact... <laughs> these white wingers are not as smart as uh, the ones in the past. And um, we, and I say we as, as peace activists, seekers of justice, community builders, like we are, that I I believe we are, um, we have a broader and deeper coalition than our ancestors. And we have their wisdom um, when it comes to fighting this stuff that they didn't have because they were setting the groundwork. You know what I mean? So um, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic that we can kick these people in the ass over time. <laughs> I love your optimism. And and I actually I actually do share it. And, and I think that it's something we haven't done in a while on this podcast is um, kind of go into when we say apocalypse, we're not necessarily saying like bad as um, in as in, um, I mean, yes, bad, yes, bad, but more of like the, the traditional, the, the etymological background of the word as in like the unveiling, the great unveiling that we are experiencing now, which is kind of seeing the, um, you know, carefully placed, um, you know, uh, what's the fucking metaphor I'm looking for here? Wool pulled over, uh, the whatever, like when the sheets are pulled off the bed, is that? Yeah, they, they, the wool's pulled over your eyes, so. Well, yeah, I was like, yeah. I couldn't, I was like mixing my, I was like, the wool's pulled off the bed? No, that's not what it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jesus, apocalypse words is hard. Um, but yeah, so, but like in that sense, what you're saying is, it's actually in keeping with that, you know, we are seeing kind of for the first time in modern history, like really the inner workings very exposed and we're able to, you know, like you said, we have this, um, you know, opportunity to rise up in ways that we never did. And, um, and we are also experiencing like a connectedness thanks to the internet and, you know, all, like we have this way of connecting with each other and exposing the powers that be in ways that we never had before. Um, and so uh, with that in mind, I, I would love to, you know, I would love it if you could tell our, our What the Folk fam a little bit about your background and how, how you got into, um, you know, first, how, how you got into the military, how you got into doing anti-war work and... Um, how you ended up in the place where you are now. Okay. I do want to say that I do understand um, at times getting a little bit depressed and and saying, oh my goodness, you know, this is impossible. So don't get me wrong. Um, I do understand that. But uh, again, I have to look back. And when I do that, I kind of like shake my head and say, come on now, you know, you're, you're like disrespecting those people who went through so much more. So that's, that's basically, but I do have to do that in order not to get, you know, depressed. So, 
Um, yeah. Yeah. So how did I, I grew up in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Fort Bragg's located there. Um, and I have a pretty deep history of people serving in the military. My grandfather served in World War I. And I have an uncle who served in World War II. He actually served um, um, in the same division that Patton was was uh, the general over um, um, sergeant major, first sergeant, master sergeants, you know, just a lot of military. Um, so I grew up around the military, um, respecting uh, soldiers, um, seeing families doing well from what I could see from the outside. You know, I didn't know what post-traumatic stress was, right? Um, my mother... Um, very independent person and didn't take much junk from any men. So she ended up marrying three times. So my, my, uh, her third husband, my, my second stepfather or my first stepfather, actually, um, he, he was in the military. And so I lived on Fort Bragg and I bring that up specifically because he was a Vietnam veteran and his family, uh, said that he was never the same when he returned from Vietnam. And I remember that as a child, like 10 or 11, 12 years old. Um, and he had a drinking problem. He had a drug problem. Um, and that's the reason my mother and him divorced. Um, so I saw what military families have many go through, but I did not know what was going on, you know, not until I've gotten older and, and learned what post-traumatic stress is. So he had that for sure. Um, but seeing my friends graduate, go into the military, come back, driving nice cars and all that kind of stuff. Going in the military is one of those things you do when you grow up in federal. You know, a lot of my friends went in the military. Some didn't, but most did. Um, so it was a career path. So I went into the military between my junior and senior year of high school, um, into the reserve went to college. So I was enlisted, went to college, became an officer, um, became a field artillery officer, went to the 24th Mechanized Infantry Division, which I believe is 3rd ID now at uh, Fort Stewart, and um, fought in what they call the first Gulf War. You were going to say something? I was going to say I was also stationed at Fort Stewart in the 3rd ID. Yeah. I don't think we've ever made that connection before, no. but I didn't want to interrupt you. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's something, right. Right. Yeah. So I just want to say um, same war from back in 1992, everything we're doing today, uh, you know, it's the same conflict, really. And uh, how did I get in Veterans for Peace after September? Well, I had started becoming getting involved in activism, but but domestic activism issues specifically to impact impact the black community disproportionately or 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 just the black community um and i started to see because i'm always concerned with everybody i mean you know my mother's a woman so i'm concerned about and that might some people say oh your your daughter or your mom's a woman so you're concerned well whatever i am concerned about it uh what happens and I've seen the trials and tribulations my mother went through as a woman and then being a black woman. So I saw intersectionality growing up. Um, so I've always been concerned about different people and I saw peace as being like this umbrella and it seems like we're fighting the same monster, but kind of in silos. That's what the conclusion I had come to. 
Uh, so I was starting to look into peace things. And before September 11 happened, I had gone to, I was looking for a peace organization, not anti-war. I came to the anti-war through a peace lens. Hmm. So I was looking for a peace organization and I had gone to a peace action rally against Star Wars right before September 11 happened that, that summer. Um, then September 11 happened, right? So it kind of changed the trajectory of things. And my wife at the time was the uh, executive director of the ACLU of uh, New Jersey. And she was speaking at an event, um, Civil Liberties after 9-11. And there was another veteran speaking at it um, that was in this organization called Veterans for Peace. And she told me, you know, you should go listen to this guy and see what it's about. So I said, yeah, I think I'll do that. Turned out it was David Klein, who at the time was president of Veterans for Peace. And I was just totally, uh, I thought David was awesome. So I said, let me go talk to this guy. And we, we talked, we became fast friends. I got involved in Veterans for Peace and voila. I was kind of stuck in VFP. <laughs> yeah, so that's how it happened. Um, I'm kind of curious. You said you were approached, you know, thing, um, your work from a peace lens versus an anti-war lens. I feel like a lot of people think that's interchangeable. I'm kind of curious how you might, um, you know, suss out the difference between those two and why it's important. Right. Well, peace, it, first of all, peace is not the absence of war. Mm-hmm. So right off the bat. Although you do need to get, you need to end war or not have war to have peace. But if you, let's say we did that, that doesn't mean we'll all be peaceful. And I don't think peaceful peace is a utopia either. Right. Um, It's, uh, I think my definition would be everyone respecting each other and especially life itself and working towards um, everyone having your basic needs, right? Like that's a goal that everyone shares. Um, there still be conflicts about how to do it and stuff like that. Right. And people oh, I'm still, sure. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and there'll still be some violence, but it wouldn't be something that would be the norm and the first go-to thing. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's what I look at. And, and peace is not just, so while I was in Veterans for Peace, um, there was a, a board member at the time who is also a, uh, now a, um, advisory board member named Margaret Stevens. And at the time, president of the um, Veterans for Peace was Patrick McCann. The three of us came up with this thing called Peace at Home, Peace Abroad. And so when you understand that you have to work for peace here at home and abroad at the same time, then all of a sudden you realize you can't just be anti-war. You know, because if you're just working against U.S. foreign policy and war, and you're neglecting what's happening here, mm-hmm. um, you can't really work against U.S. foreign policy and change it towards peaceful, you know, because the U.S. foreign policy is a manifestation of the things that are happening here, too, right? So, um, so that's why I distinguish between the two. And then lastly, um, I do think that in order to work for peace, you have to work on yourself, mm-hmm. You know, and you have to um, actually be courageous because it's hard working on yourself. And sometimes when you look in the mirror, when you're looking at yourself, you see some stuff, you're like, oh, no, that can't be me. But guess what? It is. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's okay. It's okay because all of us look like that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to change ourselves to, to act to be better. And a lot of people who are in the anti-war movement are not doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's, that's um, what I, I think about when I say that. I love the way you put that because it really is, I think, a, often, I know I'll even just speaking from my perspective, when I first got into anti-war organizing, because as I got in through Iraq Veterans Against the War and then encountered Veterans for Peace through that group, um, <clears throat> I had this mentality early on that like we're fighting, we're working against the war. And so all these other issues would come up, you know, um, issues around race and gender and ability and all these different things. And I would kind of brush them to the side and be like, well, okay, but we're doing anti-war work. Like this is different. And, um, and it took a while before I finally like got it through my head through very patient, um, (laughs) fellow organizers who were like, actually, this is all the same struggle. Um, (laughs) it's not either anti-war or anti, you know, racism or anti-sexism. It's, you know, all of these things are part of the same struggle. And, and I appreciate, you know, when you say like it starts not just at home, but but in the self, um, we have to decolonize ourselves and and make peace within ourselves. So um, can you talk a little bit about your um, experience in doing that work and some of the things that you some of the things that you found really helpful and empowering and other things that maybe you saw as um, hindrances or struggles within that movement? Within the anti-war peace movement? Within the, yeah, within Veterans for Peace and the, the, you know, peace at home work. Oh, well. um, So, as I said, before I was in Veterans for Peace, um, I got involved in issues affecting the black community. So I joined the NAACP um, when I was in Memphis, but I really didn't do much while I was there. I really got more involved when I moved to St. Louis. So I got involved with the Universal African People's Organization, which is kind of a a black nationalist organization um, in St. Louis and the Organization for Black Struggle uh, there as well. UAPO, uh, Zake Baruti was the chair of that, and Jamala Rogers, the chair of OBS. Um, I bring them up in NAACP because it's kind of a spectrum. NAACP is a little more moderate, but still standing up for black people um, and pushing real hard. You know the history of the NAACP. It's very deep. And, and then you have people who you could say are more radical, um, but... Um, Definitely, like, like I said, black nationalists. And I learned a lot during that period of time working with them. Um, and I didn't, I, and, and I've been the kind of person, I don't, I'm not a cliquish person. So I got to know all kinds of different people and other movements as well during this time period. Um, so, like I said, I, I began to see that we're all fighting kind of like, or, or pushing against the same thing and we're and I'm like a person who's for stuff, right? So um peace seemed like there's something to be for, you know, and it kind of brings us all together. Eventually I moved to uh uh New Jersey and like I said I met David Klein and 
And while I was in New Jersey, I got involved with the People's Organization for Progress, uh, which is, again, is, a, is, is based out of Newark, um, but it's Black-centered. Um, but all kinds of people are involved in it. So I just come from, and, and I, again, I want to speak about my mother. My mother taught, taught me to uh, respect all people. They were all um, brothers and sisters or, or people, uh, um, God's children. And I, I'm a Christian, although I'm a heretic, because my, my beliefs are not like your traditional Christian beliefs, you know. Um, so it's always, I've always looked at the world through a lens of, okay, we got to figure this thing out, right? Um, so coming fr from that tradition, and I think generally black people go that way or we would have had an armed insurrection, um, trying to separate ourselves from the craziness that um, the United States has been towards us. Um, but we believe, I think, as a people anyway, in, in democracy and the ideas of community and things of that nature. Um, so we've always pushed this nation to be better and live up to the ideals that it claims it has. That's, that's what we do as black people. Um, and I believe that. Um, so when I got involved in Veterans for Peace, though, um, First of all, it was it's mostly white, so and they were all older than me, mm -hmm. and a lot older, like 10, 15, 20 years. So I was a little concerned, is this going to work out? But they were good people. David Klein is an awesome person. Um, Gene Glazer is a World War II veteran. He's no longer with us anymore, but uh, he was a combat a medic. I loved, I loved Gene. He was an awesome dude. You know, so I met a lot of great people who are, who are not with us anymore and who are still in Veterans for Peace. Um, I guess what I started to see is this um, anti-imperialist uh, point of view uh, that some people think of as being anti-American, and sometimes it is, um, like the United States is the devil and that if there was no U.S., everything would be perfect type of mentality. Um, but these were the people who were standing up against U.S. foreign policy and wanted to change it. So I'm going to work with you because that's what we need mm -hmm. to do, right? And I might not agree with all the your points of view and stuff, but that doesn't matter because we, we have a goal and you're good people. So let's move forward together. So for um, a long time, you know, I would continue to do the work I was doing domestically, especially with uh, black organizations. Um, but I would also work um, in the anti-war movement, again, which is more anti-war than peace you know, and try to bridge the gap and, and talk to the anti-war movement about how to be more effective and that we need to be more of a peace organization and that these domestic issues actually do impact what we're trying to do and vice versa. And most importantly, anti-war or even peace, you can't do this by yourself. You need these domestic uh, policy people, the people who are pushing up against what's happening here at home. You need them. They don't necessarily need us, you know, mm -hmm. you need them in order to change things. But over time, um, I saw that there seems to be very little appetite within a, a, a good sized circle in the anti-war movement for really living up to the values they profess when it comes to uh, what's happening here at home. And, mm -hmm. and, and even more importantly, relationships that I saw um, specifically within Veterans for Peace, where we have younger vets, you know, and I'm older, like I said, I'm 58. Um, so some of the patriarchy and 
ways of seeing the world, I was able to deal with with those older veterans. And it didn't bother me enough to where I don't want to do any, have anything to do with you. Um, but a lot of the younger veterans who are a little more impatient when it comes to the kind of change that they want to see. And also, I, I, I think a big part of it, because there was a lot of conflict and the younger veterans trying to say to the older veterans, this is my perception. Um, we came here because we know we have things to learn. We don't want you to tell us what to do. We want to work together. Mm-hmm. And then when there is conflict, you know, who wants to fight with somebody that could be your father? You know, who wants right. to fight with somebody that could be, you know, somebody's 30 years older than you, you know? I mean, that's not... And, and that person acting like they're the same age as you are, which is stupid, you know? And I don't mean <laughs> ageism, but there's there, there, there's supposed to be some wisdom and a way of understanding how to to guide people, you know, uh, as you get older, that's your job, really, mm-hmm. you know, is to provide guidance, not to tell people what to do, but to to be a um, not even just a mentor, but uh, an example. Let's put it like that. Right. And a lot of them don't know how to do that. So people was, were leaving. And um, people that I care about and learned a lot from. And I wasn't going to be able to learn the things that I could learn from veterans who are younger than me, from the veterans who are older than me, I've, and vice versa, right? But I learned a lot from them already. So I need, I want to, I want to be in relationship with younger vets. But you guys are driving them away, and you all are dying. So at some point, there's not going to be any more of you, and I'm going to be the only one left in my age group. Mm-hmm. And all the young vets, I'm not going to know them anymore because you ran them off, you know. Mm-hmm. And so that's at a personal level that it was like time for me to step away. But it also was like, how are we building a movement when this is happening? And I can't, I can't stay in a space where I can clearly see it's not true movement building. You know, we're not building power and we're cannibalizing ourselves. So that's, that's, that's just on, um, on the movement, you know, what am I trying to do? So when you took the personal and what I'm trying to accomplish and put them together and I was not seeing, you know, where this was going, you know, it was time to, to, to find other spaces to be part of. Yeah. I, that's, that's all, that's such salient points that you bring up. And I also experienced and witnessed a lot of that when I got involved with um, VFP and Iraq Vets Against the War and, um, I would love it if you could um, kind of go more into what it looks like to actually do movement building in your mind as far as like, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit about how the, how the you know, the, how the various ways to not do it and how to alienate each other. <laughs> We're all great at that. I'm, I'm super good at alienating people, <laughs> it turns out. Um, but it is what you're touching on is like the much more complicated and difficult work of like building interpersonal bonds and building community. And yeah, so I would, I would love to know more of how, how you have, um, you know, since since you weren't finding a space for that in those organizations, how have you um, progressed from there? Have you found spaces to do that? And what does that look like? Yeah. So let me say 
to be fair to Veterans for Peace, uh, because I, I'm still in Veterans for Peace. And um, I think it has and will continue to do needed work um, by, by uncovering things and, and uh, providing information that you can't find anywhere else, or, or it's hard to find. I shouldn't say you can't find anywhere else. Um, I just don't think that is leveraged as veterans, um, our privilege to the extent that it could. Um, and I was in VFP. I mean, I was ED twice, 13, 11, 12 years. So, you know, so I can't say I didn't find any space. Um, but what it was more so is that I started to see how people were being treated. And it was like, oh, wait. So it took a while. So just, just to be fair. Um, so, you know what, when you, when you're involved in something for a long time and you know, a lot of people and you care about them, I think at least for me, and I've seen it with some other vets that left VFP, uh, you go through a period of a kind of mourning. Um, so for a while, it took about two or three years, um, I wasn't even sure I wanted to, to be an activist, at least I'd be an activist, but do I want to work in the activist, you know, cause I'm always going to be standing up and being out in the street or whatever, but did I want that to be my 24 seven thing, you know? Uh, so I started looking at doing other things. Um, but even previous to that places that I did find where people were really trying to build, um, were in organizations like the organization for black struggle or the Universal African People's Organization. Um, and, and I'm sure uh, part of that is because of the uh, collective shared experience as Black people um, and just coming together and knowing that we're under assault um, as, you know, as a people. So it kind of forces you to, to try to figure some things out. Um, and I think a great example of that is... I was involved, I was still with VFP, but I was involved in um, Ferguson Uprising in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, when Michael Brown Jr. was killed. And um, interestingly, like the day after it happened on NPR, local NPR station, I heard about it. Um, I woke up that morning and maybe it was Sunday because I believe he was killed on Saturday. And I was like, well, I'll hear more from OBS or Universal African People Organization. I knew at some point I was going to be involved, but who knew that the young people were going to like take a stand, you know, and this was not, you know, not going to be like your regular old person gets killed by police. And, you know, we go through the things we usually go through. Um, and the black community across the spectrum from the urban league, the NAACP, the universal OBS, the nation of Islam, the new black Panther party. I mean, across the spectrum, we're able to come together um, to support the young people there and really progressive people. You name it from Palestinians to um, th this is something Palestinians organizations, all the way over to Zionist-like organizations. We're able to, and everybody in between, the LGBTQ, uh, immigrants, et cetera, we're able to come together to support these Black people 
out in the streets fighting against uh, police uh, oppression and suppression because we all could see what this meant, you know, for the community. Um, so I think building power and community means understanding what is actually happening to people and identifying with those people uh, and knowing and realizing that you could be one of them no matter who they are. So as a man, um, when I see something happening to a woman, I can't just be like, oh, that can't never happen to me. Well, something like it can happen to me, right? And so that's a selfish reason, but there's a little selfishness in all of us, right? And, and when you realize that, then that makes you have that connection uh, with the person and then it turns into a more selfless reason. You know, so um, I think building community begins with connection, you know, talking to people, realizing how much of the same we are and that we're all in this together. And then from there, it's like being patient, listening, um, being willing to, if you make a mistake, realizing it and mm -hmm. um, being willing to talk about it and being able to take some pain, you know, because at the end you come out on the other side of it, you'll be stronger. You know, that self-evaluation part is so important because you can't really build those strong relationships with people that maybe you are part of the oppressor group, right? It's hard to build relationships with uh, people that you have a hand in suppressing if you're not willing to listen. And the, the system thrives off of those divisions. Mm -hmm. So we can't build power if we're not building relationships across those divisions. And then the other thing I think is really important um, is really, really important uh, it's not being um, self-righteous and expecting everybody to be where you are uh, because then you isolate yourself, right? And isolation is not building power. You have to reach out and meet people where they are. Um, and as you do that, you know, everybody's not going to come along, but some people will. And if you're not reaching out and meeting people where they are, you're never going to find those people. And, and the system has a way of pulling people to it. So if you're not finding ways to, to engage and pull people in your direction, don't worry about it. They're going to get organized by something. You know, so, so, and I, when I say something, it could be um, a hobby, you know, or it could be watching football every Saturday or, mm -hmm. you know, going out to the club. It's going to be something people get organized into. Uh, and so you have to do those things. And um, unfortunately, I think many people, because of self-righteousness, because of one, the need to be right, um, don't, don't do that. And let me just give an example. And I think I'll give two and, and then... Hopefully I've answered your question. Um, <laughs> um, one is the anti-war movement. When we had tens of thousands of people coming out in the street, and I think, including myself, I thought, okay, we're getting ready to create change. And, and we did some. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to disregard the, kind of, the changes that we did make. We did make some. 
Um, we certainly change the public's perception about the U.S. wars, and that's a big deal. Um, but what we didn't do, and what we need to have a, make a lesson from, is talking to people so that, because one of the things that happened when Obama came into office um, and the anti-war movement started to go down, is because, and it's fair, people said, okay, I have a chance to make a difference in whatever my issue is. Right. So they went and started to work on their thing. Well, we hadn't built enough awareness in, in the, you know, in the broader population about U.S. foreign policy, not just being about Bush. It's U.S. foreign policy. It's not Bush policy, you know, and and that policy impacts the issues that you're working on. We didn't do enough talking about that. We didn't do enough learning ourselves about uh, the movements that we were trying to bring together. There was a lot of, again, self-evaluation we needed to do, but there was a lot of communication that we didn't do. And I think there's a similar dynamic happened with the um, police pushback on police issues and, and the defund the police movement. Um, there were so many people in the street, I think people thought, okay, we're getting ready to make this huge change. And instead of, and, and all the things that we did being out there, we should have done, but we also need to talk to those people who were kind of on the fence or didn't understand what was happening and not let the, the right define what defund the police means, right? And they did because we didn't do that communication. We didn't do that education. And so all of a sudden defund the police is like abolish the police, which is not the same thing, you know? Uh, so, yeah, so uh, again, um, communication, self-evaluation, patience. Communication is really big, I'd say again. Um, and um, seeing yourself in the people around you, I think, is, is how we build power. Hmm. That is, I think that's a really, a really important um, framing that you're providing, because I know, I mean, for myself, especially when I first got involved with anti-war work um, and organizing in any capacity, um, and I still can be this way to a certain extent. If, like, if I see a thing a certain way and I don't feel like other people see it that way, then, you know, I'm not necessarily the best at, like, coming to a, um, you know, place of understanding and a place of, like, healthy communication. I'm oftentimes going to feel, like, unsafe with with whoever those people are or I'm going to feel like I need to go work with other people who do get me or whatever, you know. So, um, you know, yeah, it is. It's, it's the hard work. Hold on. Kitten. He was so good up until right, right now. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, but I think that what you're touching on is actually, you know, communication and healthy conflict resolution is um, the revolution, you know, like that's essentially like what we're working toward because if we have healthy communication and conflict resolution, um, there's no room for war. <laughs> there's no room for oppression because we're, we're solving things. And, um, 
you know, our egos can get in the way of that so effectively in our, the systems that are benefiting from our conflict, like absolutely love it when we're in those spaces. So I know, um, yeah, I, I appreciate the way, first of all, I appreciate that you stuck with, with, with that effort in that space for so long. And I appreciate that you're, um, you know, you're not burning out um, in the same way that you could, because we have, um, and I mean, I don't know, I don't want to like project onto you. I mean, I'm basically what I'm saying is like, you're continuing to do the work and continuing to ask questions of yourself and others. Um, which is, you know, I think all that any of us can, can really do on that note. I, I want to hear more about the work that you're doing with the South Seattle Emerald, um, and cause we talked about it a little bit last time I saw you in Seattle and, um, I want to hear more about it and, um, yeah, what you're, what you're trying to accomplish with that project. Yeah. So, um, earlier I mentioned, I wasn't sure if I wanted to continue to do activism as a 24 seven type of thing, you know? So I was looking at different, uh, the career paths and also, getting older and like, oh, what do I have for retirement type of stuff, you know? So, um, but fortunately, uh, as I was looking for a job and trying to figure out where I was going to go next, I came across uh, this publications, online publication called South Seattle Emerald. And I had read them some, because um, I moved here in 2019 and COVID hit, uh, of course. Uh, so I wasn't getting out as much. Um, trying to not get sick. Um, but I had read a little bit of South Seattle Emeralds because I live in South Seattle. And I also know that um, community papers tend to be closer to what's actually happening than the mainstream um, big paper um, of any city. Uh, so I so I usually... Uh, especially ones that are put out by people of color, right? So, you know, I try to check them out and see see what they're about. And South Seattle Emerald was publishing stuff about COVID. And I was looking at um, a, a wide range of, of sources to get information about COVID so I could try to make informed decision for myself. And they were... Um, talking about things that were happening with the protests that happened after the George Floyd's uh, murder. Um, and, you know, we had this big um, uh, occupation here in Seattle, and they actually had uh, a reporter, had reports coming from the occupation. So when I saw that there was a, a position open as executive director, I was excited about it. You know, I hadn't really done, I haven't, I mean, I've written things and I guess, People tell me, well, you've done reporter like things from the things you've written. And I guess that's true. Um, but I didn't really think I was going to get the job. Um, but they were looking more for executive director than a reporter. So, you know, so fortunately, I was able to to get the position. Now, why did I decide to to apply to them? It's because um, they're working to build community. And I just want to read to you. If you went to our site, which is SouthSeattleEmerald.com. Um, our mission is to amplify, amplify the authentic narrative of South Seattle. I want to say South Seattle is the most diverse part of Seattle. Uh, South King County 
is the most diverse part of, of Washington and probably, yeah, it's the most diverse um, of all the states surrounding us. Uh, there's a small black population uh, in this region, um, much less just Seattle. Um, and gentrification has pushed um, people out of Seattle proper, out of the central district, which is, um, was, and it might still be predominantly black, but the black population is, is getting smaller and smaller. And people are being pushed into South Seattle and then further south. Um, so the South Seattle Emerald, we report on a broad, broad things, things that affect the, the broader community, uh, but we try to focus on things that impact South Seattle. Um, so why do we do this work? And when I read this, it was like, okay, this would be a great place for me to be. Uh, the South Seattle community has been neglected and underserved by media, and that tends to be the case for any uh, community of color um, when it comes to the mainstream media. Our vibrant community deserves more accurate representation. Responsible media must consistently employ a racial justice lens. So we don't run from um, understanding that racism plays a role in why things happen. So we want to talk about context. We just don't report facts. We also report facts in context and honest context. You know, we're not trying to spin things. You're, you're doing journalism. Fantastic. Whoa. Whoa. What a novel concept. Right. We believe accountability, relationship-based media is better media. What happens is South Seattle matters. Every community should have a conduit to speak truth to power. It's essential to provide accessible platform for local voices. Equitable access to relevant information is vital to engage democracy. So, you know... This is where we're coming from. And I felt like um, helping this organization, being a part of this, I can impact in a positive way across the spectrum of community um, and, and help be part of, I mean, when you're part of a diverse community, then you're really in the experiment of how we're going to live together, right? Mm -hmm. um, and if you want to see what the future can look like, you should be trying to make it look like what you want to see in that diverse community, you know? So, hey, it was like the Lord blessed me and put me here. And then I got blessed again that I got this job. So let's make it happen, you know? So that's, that's where I'm at. Well, I'm really happy to hear you're doing that work. Um, so much of, you know, what I teach about, I worked with a lot of freshmen coming and doing college research is those kind of issues around information access and also information assessment and media literacy. And it is really overwhelming and hard to teach about because there is so much information right now. Um, I think a lot of the traditional ways we've talked about what are reliable sources don't really apply anymore. I mean, I can't even tell my students a peer reviewed journal is always 100% right all the time, you know? So um, I just would love to hear your perspective from someone in independent media about how we can maybe teach folks to think a little bit more critically about media and, you know, diversify their media diet and, you know, how to kind of engage with other narratives. Because I do think it, the role of independent media right now is really important. And 
in some ways has gotten easier with the internet, but in a lot of ways is getting a lot harder with the sort of continued um, conglomeration of, you know, the giant media companies buying up everything. Yeah. Yeah, we are in an interesting time because, as you're saying, any one of us can get on, you know, like I have a thing that I write stuff and I put it up. You can get mm-hmm. on Medium or Substack. What's it called? Substack. Substack, yeah. Yeah, you know, so everyone anybody could be kind of a reporter of, of some type. Uh, and then you have the conglomerates too. Um, one thing I think is important is for people to have some basic history. Um, so people need to, to whatever extent they can really just try to learn some basic history about the country mm-hmm. um, what our trajectory has been as a nation on various things. Um, Because history tells you a lot, right, about what's happening right now. And it can act as a filter against disinformation um, because trajectories don't all of a sudden change, you know. Um, And if you get too caught up in the moment, then you don't know what to think because everybody's argument sounds legitimate. Mm -hmm. Right. But then if you pull back and look at the historical perspective, you can start to see, oh, that argument doesn't really make any sense because of what happened over the last 30 years. You know, now that's hard, you know, because you're asking somebody to do some work. Mm-hmm. But um, really, if you want to understand what's happening now, you have to have some context. So so that that's that's like a baseline. Um, other than that, I, I think it's, it's having diverse sources, right? So one of the things I do, I always do look at the Sunday shows, um, because I know that I'm going to get what the ruling class wants to tell us from mm-hmm. those shows, you know, what they, what they want us to think or what they want us to believe. Right. And I don't say that to say that it's all a bunch of lies because a lot of it's not. But there is a percentage that always is, and if it's not a lie, is what they believe. Mm-hmm. So everybody's not lying. You know, people believe things, so they're going to tell you what they believe. Um, but that's why you got to know some history, right? Because they're, again, telling you stuff for the moment. And if you got that historical perspective, then you can have a better understanding about, for example, what's happening in Ukraine and the U.S. the U.S. and Russian conflict, Right. Uh, you can have a better understanding of that or the u.s in uh, iraq and the middle east in general you know um so have those diverse which means uh reading independent media uh reading your local media um listen to democracy now which is going to be a different perspective than um than uh what you're going to hear on TV. Again, does that mean that everything democracy now is saying is what's right in a particular moment? No, not necessarily, mm-hmm. right? But it is going to be different than what you just heard on MSNBC or ABC, certainly Fox, right? So again, I have to say, you got to have that history so that you have a filter, your own filter, you know? And then lastly, um, what are your values? You know, because at the end of the day, 
and, and this is what it's been for me. I, I try to stand on my values. So when I have to make a decision, are they in line with my values? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and as long as I'm in line with my values, I'm okay. You know, and if you're mad at me as a friend, because I'm standing on my values, I love you, man. But Hey, you know, you, you should have known me. You didn't know me yet. <laughs> you know, um, so I, I do, I think, I think those are the, the things that you can't trust hardly anything. Yeah. That's why you got it. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you got to create your own filter and know what your values are. And hopefully you got good values and then that ought to help you. Yeah. I mean, that's such a challenge, you know, especially when I get students for like 50 minutes and I have to kind of teach them if this is how you look for sources. But I like that kind of values based framing because it is yeah, like you said, you can't 100% trust everything. But that doesn't mean you can't trust anything at all. You have to kind of come to some kind of something that you can tether to and something you can ground to. So, yeah. Yeah, and you're speaking to some really salient points around, you know, knowledge being being power because, you know, we are... Um, really encouraged in this nation, not by accident, to turn our brains off and to just believe what we're told and to, you know, take in what we're told to take in and ignore everything else. And also, we're not encouraged to learn history. History is not made interesting or fun for students, people. And, and so when you're young, you know, and you're looking for something to engage with and you're just being forced to memorize dates and, you know, learn about the history of, like, old rich white men, essentially, and not be able to identify with any of them, you're going to turn your brain off, even though that the history that we, we don't need to access, like, that far back in history to see where the things that you're talking about are rooted as far as, like, in this nation, um, you know, we can look not that far back and see Jim Crow laws coming from um, slavery and slave patrols and the police being like coming out of that culture. It, not that long ago, not that long ago, <laughs> you know, and, and we can see the way that, you know, m- marginalized genders have had have always in this country historically been targeted and marginalized on purpose and it's not an accident or um an anomaly when that happens but because um you know we are living and under essentially a corporatocracy (laughs) or an oligarchy you know it benefits much more from us not knowing our own history um so you know, and I say that as somebody that, you know, I thought I knew some shit and then I started learning some history and I was like, no shit. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing, right? Once you start reading and learning, say, like, oh, wow, I had no idea. Yeah. Almost nothing's new. Right, exactly. And th- and this kind of, it's it's sad, but it's also beautiful because it's like, oh, well, when we're dealing with the same problems over and over again, like, we don't have to, like, ser- search for necessarily, like, new solutions. We just need to hone the solutions that have historically worked. And um, and I think that, you know, the, the information war coming from the oppressors has stepped up because... Um, you know, 
times are different from, you know, even 9-11. Like, people just didn't have the Internet as readily available and didn't have access to that much information. But by the time I got into the Army, you know, we were... You know, I was in public affairs, and we were at kind of the forefront of the information war, of the narrative war. Um, so I'm glad that you're bringing up all these points about, like, who's creating the narrative? Why Why are they creating it? Where is, where is the money coming from that's funding this narrative? You know, um, so um, I don't want to let me take up say the, one, oh, one yeah. let me say one thing real quick because you, you you mentioned yeah, yeah. narratives. Yeah, yeah, to blow by. <laughs> no, no, no. But this, yeah, I'm glad you said it because I, I didn't, and uh, and I believe people think in narratives. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so people take facts. I, I just think this is where, and I'm not gonna say everybody, but I'm gonna say the vast majority of people. We take facts and we need to make sense of them, so we put them in some kind of narrative. Um, and if the narrative doesn't make sense to us, um then we'll reorganize it to make it make sense for us. Uh, and so I think so, a lot of times the, the right and the left don't understand each other because we have different narratives, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it's important to know that people think in narratives, especially for organizers, uh, because facts are not going to change people's minds. It's the narratives that changes your mind. If you can somehow... Uh, either interrupt or help them move their narrative to a different place. And like you said, who is controlling the narrative? Who's paying for this narrative? Because they know that we think in narratives, right? So that's why mm-hmm. they try to control the narrative. And and the um, defund the police narrative, they redefine that. And now we have pushback. Um, right now, they're trying to redefine all kinds of narratives, like what is CRT, you know, where uh, critical race theory, where it's being taught, you know, so they've bundled these things together now and, and they're and they're redefining things like woke. All of a sudden, white people have decided what woke is, you know, <laughs> oh, Lord. And, we're sorry on behalf of white people. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, fuck. But, <laughs> and unfortunately, um, what happens, though, is that. Uh, people begin to run away from certain narratives because it's been redefined. Either they didn't know in the mm-hmm. first place or they have become victims of this redefining. So you have people, and I'll just say on the left, because I left, right, what's that really mean? But we'll say yeah. people on the left sometimes run from things that you need to be standing on. Don't run from that because the right is redefining it, you know, or trying to. Don't let them. Mm-hmm. You know, but they don't realize it's narratives. That's exactly what they're doing. So I'm glad you you brought that up because it's really important. Mm. Well, I I appreciate that you're also, you know, on that page. What would you say has been an effective form of of narrative shift for you? Because you've been doing this work for a long time and, you know, you've been working with across, you know, with organizations where you've gotten pushback and, you know, you've had to, um, you know, take some, take some agency to, to guiding people away from, 
from a toxic or a problematic narrative into, you know, maybe a more informed or a more equitable one. So what would you say are some of, and, and also I don't want to take up a huge amount of your time. I'm enjoying this conversation. But I don't want to like monopolize your time, but it, maybe briefly, what are some pointers you can give or some suggestions or some experience you have in narrative shifting? Cause it is, it's a huge thing um, right now. Yeah. Yeah, that's a tough question. Um, so when I worked for the National Conference for Community and Justice, which was previously the National Conference of Christians and uh, National Conference for Christians or uh, Christians and Jews, I can't remember. And it was it was founded like in the early 1900s um, in the wake of of uh, this guy named Al Smith, who was uh, mayor of New York, and I think he became governor of the state, and he ran for president. Um, and he was Catholic. He was the first Catholic to run for president. And there was this big uproar across the country with this Catholic running for president, and the Ku Klux Klan organized around mm -hmm. it and all this stuff, and he lost big. So um, a lot of what we would call the... Um, ruling class actually got together and said, hey, you know, we need to do something about this. So they put together this organization that was trying to bridge the gap between um, the various Christian um, groups as well as Jews. And as part of that, they started um, all these dialogues across the country. Um, and eventually someone like um, uh, President Kennedy was able to run and, and they had kind of help make clear the path for a Catholic to be able to run for president. Um, so I bring that up, though, because that, that was a big shift. So, so there was a narrative shift in the country about Catholics and uh, their allegiance and whether or not this person would be uh, controlled, you know, by the Pope, right? Um, and how did that happen? Uh, it happened through dialogue. It happened through people talking. Um, it happened through people getting to know each other and not letting the ideology, because, you know, religious ideologies can be, like, unbendable, right? Mm -hmm. um, for, for people to be able to say, well, maybe that doesn't, maybe I don't need to feed into this idea that Catholics can't, you know, a Catholic person can't be president. And so that was a long time ago before, you know, Kennedy became president like I was born in 64 and he was killed in 63. So, so that was before me. But when I worked for them, um, there was this uh, program called Anytown. And what we did with Anytown is we brought young people, high school students usually, um, or junior high, together. Uh, and there would be a broad, a, a fairly broad spectrum of people, people of different colors, people of different ethnic backgrounds, people uh, of different um, economic backgrounds. And we talk about the different structures. This is the stuff that um, right now, when they talk about uh, the left is trying to be woke and, you know, change our culture and all this stuff. Well, this was the kind of stuff that they're talking about. You know, where we get together and we talk about racism and we talk about patriarchy and we, we talk about immigration and we talk about class. We talk about all of it. Mm -hmm. Right. And mm -hmm. and, you know, we would do things like a privilege line 
where, you know, uh, did you have books uh, in your house when you were growing up? And you take a step forward and people who didn't, did you have more than five books might be the question. The people who mm-hmm. didn't would just stand there, right? Did you have, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then at the end of it, you'd see somebody way up in front going all the way back, right? And these are real things. This is not some kind of, you know, like somebody's making up anything. These, these are questions. Did you have these things? Either you had them or you didn't. And if you had them, it makes a difference in how you see the world. And if you didn't, it, it pushes you in a different direction. Doesn't mean that you can't still be uh, successful. No. And it doesn't mean that person who had all of this is going to be more successful than you. It doesn't mean that. But when you look at the larger spectrum of things, there is some difference, right? So that's mm-hmm. all real. So through any town, I saw students transform. You know, I, I had students come up to me later and said that I was so angry, but now I understand some things I didn't understand before. And now I'm ready to go out in the world and make change, you know. So the narrative changed for them. Um, and it, and it, it subdued their anger. Or if, it, if they're still angry, they were angry for different reasons. And they were motivated. And they had a community now to do something with because we had shifted everyone's narrative, you know. So, and, I, and again, I just saw this happen with adults. Um, and it was through dialogue. And going through what we call experimental uh, activities, where we're, we're sharing the activity, then we debrief it and talk about what the feelings and emotions were that we were having doing it. And it, and it created connections and it shifted narratives. So, mm-hmm. so I know it can happen. Um, and I wish the activist community, because these people that did this work weren't particularly activists. They are activists of a kind. Right. But we thought of ourselves as human relations um, people, human relations organizers. I think that activist community needs to get more involved and do that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it'll allow us to be um, more able to go out and talk to the general public, you know. Uh, So and lastly, I want to say this. I've said this before to people. If you can have some compassion for that person who's the furthest away from you ideologically and politically, then everybody in between is really easy. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not saying love the person, but have some compassion because mm-hmm. then when I'm talking to someone who's closer to me, you know, I'm not going to get as upset mm-hmm. when they're not agreeing with me because I've got some passion for this person who really fucking doesn't agree with me. And, it, and that probably wants to hurt me. You know? Yeah. So. Yeah. And that's definitely, I think, a challenge that we face on, you know, in progressive organizations, especially now, and especially with the internet, you know, folks, I mean, kind of bringing it full circle, you know, you talked about like, you have to work on your own ego. It's like, are you calling this person out for yourself or because you actually care about these issues? Or can you call them into a dialogue? Like, like you were saying, like, if this is someone who you broadly agree with, maybe you can have a conversation about gender identity and things that are, you know, maybe generationally different for some people and not necessarily assume this person is an enemy right away. Right. Klein taught me that for sure. I mean, I already had the basis for it, but just politically, Mm -hmm. he was like, you need to decide who your enemies really are. Mm -hmm. And then that's that's who you might want to throw down with everybody else. You don't need to be throwing down with them, you know, so. 
Yeah, um, that will, I mean, I think, you know, to kind of, kind of wrap things on a, maybe a more hopeful and constructive note, I think what you're saying, um, echoes to me this, the idea that empathy is, you know, kind of a radical act of resistance in this, in this culture that wants to keep us divided and in conflict, you know, compassion, empathy, communication, these, all, all of these things, um, you know, make a world without war possible. Um, and, you know, it's hearing you, hearing you say these things, it, it, you know, it just reminds me that like, there are a lot of ways to have constructive hope and, um, you know, to, to work within this incredibly oppressive, um, system and take back our, you know, our humanity and reclaim our ability to communicate with one another. Um, so thank you for doing that work. And, um, before we, before we, and you know, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Those things you talked about, are they're always telling us those things will make us weak. Right. So, you know, and right. isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. When it's the opposite, it's yeah. strength. Narrative. Yeah. Yeah. I, like I used to, I used to go, go, you know, like really hard on people who I saw as having the wrong narrative and I would get personally offended by their wrongness. And, you know, I'm not saying that like I have recovered from that entirely. I definitely get get that way sometimes, but I think (laughs) the older I get and the more tired I get, the more I'm like, all right, how do we minimize the amount of like hard work? How do we do better work? Um, And usually that means, you know, like, taking a step back, not taking other people's narratives personally and like asking questions like you're doing is with a newspaper. You ask questions, you listen to the answers and then you see our shared humanity. Just like in our, in the military. So many of us, you know, just got along in the military because we could see our shared struggle as being owned by the government, you know, <laughs> and we're like, all right, let's just have each other's back. It's, you know, so, and yeah, that's, Part of the reason why I love talking with veterans um, on this podcast and just in general, self self aware, you know, veterans questioning that narrative because we do know how to come together. We were trained in teamwork, actually. So, like that, this is a thing that we're kind of uniquely situated to help build if we can get out of our own way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess to uh, to wrap things up, I would would love if you could just tell us uh, a thing or two that's giving you hope and uh, in yeah in this in this life in this in this apocalyptic unveiling that we're going through. Um, you know what what's what's keeping your boat afloat? Yeah. Um, well, things like this, you know, um, people having these types of conversations. Um, you know, we always say young people are the future, but younger people are the future. It's not, you know, it's a cliche, but it's actually true at the same time. Um, so seeing so many people push push back, um, taking charge. Um, I think my generation, especially in the black community, maybe we were a little too um, rever- is it reverential or maybe not too respectful, but uh, for the, that 
leadership just above us. We kind of didn't push them as much as because they were like the civil rights leadership, you know, and they did mm-hmm. so much. So maybe we didn't push them as hard maybe as we should have. Um, this generation is pushing really, really hard. Um, and um, and just the fact that there's more intersection people coming together across issues than ever before, you know, and there's and there's more there's a base philosophy now around that. Um, and the fact that um, the right is pushing back, because when they say woke, part of that is that intersectionality that all these people, you know, there's a movement and they want to name it. So they decide to take something that black people use because, you know, we're like the boogeyman scarecrow, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just wave some black people in front of everybody, uh, which is okay, you know, because that <laughs> makes me know that, oh, you're afraid. So and you're afraid for a reason because you see things are changing, right? So, um, so that gives me gives me hope too. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> Sorry yeah. to cut you off, Sarah. If if you had a, another thing to say on that. Oh, I was just going to ask, um, where can people find you? We'll include links, obviously, to um, you know the Emeralds and you know some of your writing if you would like. But if you have a any kind of social media or anything that you'd like people to follow. Right. So I forget my own social media. I'm barely using mine anymore. So (laughs) (laughs) not using social media is the new social media. Right. All the coolest people are shadow banned at this point. So (laughs) everyone I want to hear is already being suppressed. (laughs) I just got to go find them. Right. Really? You know? Um, So, you can, my Twitter account is, and I'll tell you in just a second. <laughs> it's at, I should be able to remember this, at MT McPherson. So it's my middle, my first name, the initial to my first name, Michael. Mm-hmm. T is for Tyrone and then my full name. So that's my Twitter account. And then uh, I have a medium. You should look me up on medium. I write sometime there. Cool. And uh, also, sometime I post something on something called MTM Daily. And I can send you the, you know, all that. So, yeah, that's it. Sweet. We'll have all that in the show notes. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah, Thank you so much. It's been a great conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I I really appreciate you all, uh, you know, reaching out to me. I'm always honored when someone wants to talk to me. (laughs) Hey, it was you fun. got good shit to say. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.
I think of our government shamelessly catering to the elite. And I don't know much about Star Wars, but I think we might be the Empire. Now I don't mind if you're a walking Wikipedia. If you've got trivia dripping right down from your clothes, just ask anybody in the media. These other wars have endless episodes. Oh, I wish I knew more about Star Wars than drug wars. Yeah, I wish I knew. white boys smuggling blow though and getting away and I don't know much about Star Wars no I don't know much about Star Wars oh truly I don't know much about Star Wars but I wish I knew less about real See, doesn't it sound so much better when I say it than when this yeah. voice says it? Yeah. Do you want me to record this soon? No, you don't need to. I was Okay, cool. I was just, you know, riffing like I do. <laughs> You're riffing like it. <laughs> I You're spitting hot fire. <laughs> <laughs> my words is blazing. Like my weeds. Uh <laughs> Uh, it is almost 9 p.m. Mountain Time and uh, almost 8 p.m. Pacific Time on Wednesday. We're recording this and we're both very tired. So, yeah, you'll, you'll get us at our most unfiltered What the Folk fam. Yep. So we have our least give a fuck at this time of evening. It turns <laughs> out. <laughs> what the folk? We don't give a fuck. Exactly. Um, I think that's what I love most about us. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for bringing Michael onto the pod. I really loved everything he had to say. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, some of my my big takeaways were just him talking, you know, about so many of the challenges with organizing and building solidarity and bringing people together. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely something I think about a lot because I feel like, I don't know, I get frustrated at this but this is probably something I'm frustrated about because I'm not always good at it. Like, I feel like the real challenge of building solidarity, you know, we've been having all these great conversations about, you know, gender and patriarchy and race and all these things, but we have to learn how to hold all of those threads at once while still finding a way to bring everyone who's being fucked by the same system together Mm -hmm. without losing sight of all those other threads and layers. I think that can be challenging for a lot of people because 
it's like easier for our minds to be reductive about something. Like yeah. it's all about class or it's all about race or it's all about gender. It's all about this or it's all about that. And it's like, no, it's actually, it's about like all of those things all at mm-hmm. once. And sometimes those things are going to matter more in certain contexts than they do in others. Right. So, right. When you're dealing with, you know, everything problematic everywhere, all at once, as it were, you know, you have to like, we have to learn how to um, filter better. You know, we, we have to figure out which hills we really want to um, die on, if, which is actually kind of a terrible m- metaphor considering <laughs> we ostensibly only, only do die the one time. Um, side note, you only die once, I think, would have made a really way worse I mean, marketing campaign. Um, for the army? For anything. Yoda, Yoda would not have flown. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, really just also to, to, to be less, um, more aware of our filters, more aware of community building, but also, also have, um, personal boundaries, which is, you know, I think the delicate dance because, you know, we can talk all we want about inclusivity, but then like, you know, when we're trying to protect ourselves from harm, um, you know, that can kind of go out the window, but that's part of the work. Yeah. Yeah. And figuring out, (laughs) Exactly. Like you said, where those boundaries are, maybe my boundaries are different than your boundaries. Maybe I'm able to have conversations that you can't have and vice versa, you know, mm-hmm. vice versa, vice versa. I don't know. I don't know. My mom always pronounced yeah. it vice versa. And then I read it and I was like, in my mind, I was like, you're wrong. Um, because I, <laughs> even at a young age, I knew you don't just like tell my mom that she was wrong. Um, so either way, I don't know how I, at this point I've come to a place of acceptance, pronounce it how you want. Um, yes, we're inclusive, at least in the way we can pronounce vice versa. Ooh, and you know what, <laughs> speaking of which, speaking of inclusivity in pronunciation and language, I was also one of those like people for years and years who was very particular about grammar and usage and punctuation until I learned that part of decolonizing ourselves means decolonizing our language and, you know, accepting and understanding that everyone's coming to every language from their, from their own place. But especially English, there's so much colonialism and, you know, imperialism and oppression just couched in English and the English language and the way we expect it to be used. Yeah, and so much, like, class stuff, too, to, like, to have that access to education. Mm -hmm. And sometimes even to have the access to education to know, like, what the right words are always to say Mm -hmm. to be, like, you know, Mm -hmm. the most um, up-to-date with what folks, you know, are preferring to be referred to for, you know, especially in this time when everybody... Like, people don't, I think, sometimes give people enough you know, sensitivity there, at least initially to be like, have you had the time to be online all day learning about these things? Right. <clears throat> like maybe you haven't. So that's, you know, I think we need to get a little better at sussing out when someone's coming from a place of genuine, like wanting to harm people or just genuinely like 
not knowing and not necessarily making it about us or about, you know, I don't know if I'm articulating right, but yeah, that whole, I think about that a lot because, you know, I work in academia and I think there's this assumption that if you don't write a certain way or talk a certain way, you're not educated, but being able to be in those spaces where you learn how to do that is a, like, that's a fucking privilege. So. Right. And like the real skill is learning how to communicate, you know, across different languages and learning how to interpret someone's meaning um, behind what they're saying, which I admittedly am bad at. I'm a very literal person a lot of the time um, and often I'm completely, like, things will go over my head because I'm just sort of like, wait, what? Um, I don't know where that came from, but it is. And it's a thing that, you know, I have to work on. It's like, honestly, you know, if we're if we're being... For me, my theory, you know, is if we all would just focus on communication as, like, the, you know, pinnacle skill, you know, like, the most necessary skill that a a healthy, sustainable, you know, community could need, you know, that communication is, is where we all break down. Yeah, and I think a lot of that's, like, listening and not assuming you necessarily know someone's motives right away or where they're coming from on something. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and trying to connect around shared values, which I think Michael did a good job of talking about that, you know, working with sort of all those ge- different generations of veterans and sort of it sounded like, you know, you had to play a role as almost like a bridge between different, you know, age groups and groups of people a lot of the time, which can be very exhausting, but, like, also puts you in a unique position of being able to see where everybody does have shared values. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean people aren't accountable for their own behavior, whether it's ageism in one direction or, you know, maybe sexism or not understanding, you know, certain issues that are more important to, like, younger generations. Um, But that still means that you do have this, like, common ground you can come together and work from. And I guess for me, I get frustrated sometimes. I'm like, the issues are so urgent. Like, the world is literally on fire. Like, a lot of these conversations, they are lovely and important, but they are not going to fucking matter when the world's Mm -hmm. gone. So maybe we can kind of figure out. But, like, it's a multi-level game, and we got to play all of it all at once. So, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is really interesting, you know, as we read every day more and more about um, climate change and, you know, the damage done by all of the world's largest polluters, which, you know, spoiler alert, are, you know, a few corporations and the United States military um, as the biggest the biggest polluters, you know, on, on Earth, which I guess you could consider the U.S. military as a corporation as well. It's just, you know, the military-industrial complex and then, like, you know, a few other corporations are the largest polluters, and they're not stopping. And so we're watching in real time as the Earth actively tries to expel the parasite that we have become. <laughs> 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 and, um, yeah, so it's like all these conversations are getting much more urgent because, you know, it's it's like, who's going who's, who's gonna to survive, really? We... People look at me funny when I'm when I talk like this. <laughs> I'm sure they do to you too. 
Because it's like, oh, yeah. you're being so cynical. Oh, like humanity always thought we were going to, you know, go extinct for, we were in the end times for hundreds of years. I'm like, yeah, well, okay, but like what is hundreds of years in the scope of how long the earth has been around? And like, can we actually pay attention to documented drastic shifts in the ecosystem? <laughs> Right. Like, if nothing else, I mean, I think maybe it's just, again, because I work in academia, a lot of people are thinking about these things and having these conversations. And I do think people are at this kind of what the fuck do we do kind of Mm -hmm. place with it. But it's like, you know, out in the real world, people just kind of still want to party and be involved in their lives. And I mean, those things do still, you know, like we keep falling in love and fucking and fighting and doing all the normal human things. Mm -hmm. And we'll be doing those until climate change takes us out or something else or, or we figure it out. Like, so there's something kind of weirdly beautiful about the kind of mundane existence that we all are sort of beholden to no matter what happens. Um, I don't really know where I'm going with that, but I think about that a lot. It's like so interesting yeah. You know, just like with my interpersonal relationships, I'll be like, wow, there's this whole huge tapestry of like apocalypse happening behind me. But I'm like upset because I'm reading too much about the wording of my that my boyfriend used in a text. You know right. what I mean? Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> same. Same. I mean, we're, we keep going about our daily lives. You know, we can't. And we we have the option of not, you know, I suppose we could go sit on a mountain and meditate or, you know, like do any number of things that don't involve, you know, engaging in quote unquote mundane, but not really. I mean, as long as we're alive, existing, we have to do something. And if we do it enough, it's going to eventually feel, you know, mundane and typical, um, I think it's the idea of things being quote unquote normal is a is a is a thing of the past. Like we're kind of living in the age of adventure of like what's gonna happen next? What fresh hell is this? <laughs> I do declare <laughs> To quote the great Saint Dorothy Parker, what fresh hell is this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean it's like every time I think I can't get crazier, I'm like, oh, wait, they're literally like upset about drag queen story hour now. <laughs> you know, like right. there's just things. I mean, that's just like one little example, but I'll be like, wait, people like this is what we're talking about right now. And this is we yeah. have to refight these battles again. The interesting. While, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I was saying, well, it seems like this is not the time to be refining battles this is the time to be finding solidarity i honestly believe that the reason these um pieces of legislation and this manufactured culture war right now is is heating up is because the media is owned by six companies and um it is it's really really profitable to keep people in conflict because you know most of the people that you talk to who have a negative opinion uh, about 
drag or queerness, because it's really a conversation about queerness, right? You know, it's not about drag. Yeah. It's about queer people expressing right, themselves, right? Yeah. right? And, um, you know, it it's... Um, You know, people, if they have negative opinions, have been given those negative opinions from somewhere, either from a church, which is, you know, a very political organization. All churches are, whether or not they ever acknowledge that. Um, Or from a talk show, you know, like a, a news show, whether it's like CNN or Fox or whatever, like they all report the same things, but from different, quote unquote, different sides. And it's like... All right, but when you talk to regular people in the world, like, how many people do you know personally who, if they turned off their TVs, would feel that way, would feel anything but, like, probably, like, maybe curious indifference toward queer people or and drag queens? Yeah, especially if, like, you don't actually... Once you know people personally... Right. Um, which, obviously, like we're both queer and like, so we know a lot of people and, but you know, if you're in say in small town, rural America, but then when it's like, it's your kid or it's your coworker, it's, you know, like when you have a human face mm-hmm. in it, you realize like, Oh yeah, this is just no big deal. But right. I don't, it's like, yeah, I don't know. I guess maybe too. I, I just don't naturally assume because I don't personally understand something that that means I need to be, afraid of it or upset about it or assume that it's a problem. Right. Well, and I don't think most people really do. I think we're, we're fed the idea that there is a controversy, right? But, like, it's so interesting. Whenever I hear, the way I find out about controversies isn't from somebody representing the the controversial view that I know. It's from some kind of, like, clickbait saying there's a controversy about this. Or somebody, Christians are up in arms about this, or conservatives are mad about this, or blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, okay, but, like, do any of the conservatives I know, are they talking about it? Are any of, like, you know, the straights that I know, like, who is straight, really? But, like, are the straights talking about this? Like, no, I don't usually hear it from them first. I hear them weighing in on an article that already exists about a controversy, and forming an opinion based on the idea that an opinion needs to be formed right now. And, like, if you don't have an opinion or if you have the wrong one, then, like, you're fucked. Or, like, you're a bad person or whatever. And and I think to full circle it back around to, like, the things that Michael is trying to work toward, it's like if we're living our values, then we're not going to generally be nitpicking about shit like this. Most people out there are living their values, whether they know it or not. They just, like, everybody doesn't have the same values. But um, if those values aren't tied to, like, you know, um, contrived conflict, then they're much more alike than different, I think. Yeah, and I think you can sometimes get to the heart of the matter with things. I mean, I know I've brought up this example before, but, like... The people that believed in QAnon, it was like, cool, you realize the government is shitty and hurts children. There's actually something we can work with there. Mm -hmm. There is a kernel of a thing that we could work with to have a conversation about foreign policy, about the way marginalized communities have been treated in this country, the way 
poor white kids are treated in this country. You know, like there's so much we could talk about there that actually like your instinct and my instinct and the things we care about are not dissimilar. It's the narrative that fucks everyone in the head. Right. Like, okay, for example, since we are about to hit the 20th anniversary of the Iraq war, let's, you know, use, for example, the Iraq war. At this point, um, most people who've been involved, even peripherally or aware of the Iraq War, are aware that it was um, at best misguided, at worst um, intentionally, you know, an illegal invasion and occupation. Um, and, uh, and they all have suffered for it. Um, whether or not they went in believing in it or not, you know, like whether or not they, um, you know, are a Democrat or Republican, because that war has been going on for 20 years under, um, you know, four presidents now, Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden, have all continued to occupy Iraq. Um, Which, side note there, um, we are now at the phase in life where any... A soldier deploying to Iraq for the initial invasion, if they had left behind a newborn baby, uh, that child would now be old enough to go deploy to that same war, Um, which really should be cause enough to start building guillotines, I'm saying. But um, anyway, so the point being that, like, I think we can all really unite around the Iraq war and how, and we can all admit to ourselves without a whole lot of inner turmoil or conflict that, you know, the United States government, both parties, fucked over a lot of fucking people. um, And, uh, and that... You know, that was a combination of foreign policy being fucked, um, domestic policy being fucked, because there was so much, um, first of all, heavily misleading recruiting happening of young people and the um, defunding of education so that there weren't other options for kids to, you know, go to school. So if you're poor, it's like, okay, you can go to the military or jail, you know. Um, And, uh, you know, and it's also, it's also, um, you know, economic policy because, you know, when you look at, um, when you look at how, how much was allocated, has been continued to be allocated to be spent on that war, it's now in like the trillions, right? Like, it's insane how much money we've spent over the last 20 years. I think it's trillions. I think it's trillions. Yeah. I'm pretty sure we're yeah. deep in the trillions, honestly. But even when it was billions, it was. it's like all of that money could have been used to make people's lives better, not just here, but literally everywhere. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and, I mean, I was just looking at this. Okay, so the Pentagon's proposed budget sent to lawmakers for 2024 is $842 yeah. Billion. Oh, yeah. But then that jumps jumps to almost $900 billion with the Energy Department's nuclear weapons work and other federal projects. And I think I, again, I don't take this with a grain of salt, but some, I read somewhere in line that, like, 
half of that is earmarked for, you know, private contractors. Yeah. So of course. It's like, it's like Well that's how they quote unquote I mean, they just, ended the Iraq war, yeah. right? Is like basically privatized it but kept troops there to like maintain the present like I know people who are still planning on deploying to Iraq potentially. On active, you know, people who are in the military right now. Um, so it's like, you know, that's that's how it was starting to happen back in um, 03, 04, 05, 05. By the time I got to Baghdad in 05, um, we were already starting to see things get privatized all over the place. I mean, things were already privatized. Halliburton, you know, KBR had most of the contracts um, for the base infrastructure, and then there was, you know, all the shady, you know, um, private contract, like guerrilla, uh, what's the words, not, um, fucking assassins, you know, Blackwater, that type of thing, there, Prince yeah, people. Yeah. yeah, and I guess to kind of bring it full circle, you know, I guess when you start talking about things like this, there is that point where it's like, well, it's really hard to wrestle with it. And so maybe there is the thing where you're like, okay, let me fight about what's immediately in front of me. But mm-hmm. all we really have are our relationships with each other to pull us through this time. Like, we can't necessarily on our own change any of these things. But together, which is why they want us divided and arguing about culture war stuff, mm-hmm. We we can actually push the needle, but it does kind of start with, like you were saying, coming into those spaces of communication and relationship building. Yeah. Which is hard oh because we're all fucking base, basically <laughs> on a, pri- a prison planet where we've chosen to learn through trauma across, <laughs> a thousand, across a thousand incarnations if you subscribe to the School of Thought. Idea. Yeah. If you don't, you're still learning through a lot of fucking trauma in one incarnation. So either way... Like, I don't know who designed this system, but I really hope there are other planets where they do it fucking better, because I would like to go to that in the next go-around. I would like to go to there. <laughs> so. Yeah, seriously. I mean, I, I mean, I'll be the first to admit, like, I suck at that kind of thing. Like, I'm way better at ideas than, um, <laughs> than actualizations when it comes to, like... You know, the next level communication and not telling somebody to fuck off when they say too much ignorant shit in a row. Like, honestly, I like so anybody out there who's listening and is like, who are these bitches like talking out their ass about communication? Blah, blah. Like, yeah, we are a little bit. We all have to talk out our ass a little bit until we can make it real life. <laughs> I think. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Fake it till you make it, motherfucker. Make it till you make it. Speak your reality into being. Yeah, so that's how we manifest <laughs> that shit. Um, yeah, we make these. You know, we make a podcast, <laughs> and then we eventually get held accountable often enough that we change our behavior. It's great. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, don't don't hold us accountable for anything we're recording. Yeah. At this time, I want to say it. Or do hold us accountable, actually. Yeah, actually, give us oh. shit. Give us shit, because <laughs> yeah. we haven't set up our Patreon yet for you to give us money. You might as well give us shit. <laughs> <laughs> we might as well get something out of this project. <laughs> I get a lot, actually. I, I really love... No, I get I know, a lot. I know you mean that. I know you... I know you're just yeah. fucking around, but like honestly, I am fucking around. Conversations like this right now, and like the one with Michael that we've we got to have um, 
it, I feel like it gives me a lot of hope and motivation to like just keep my wheels turning and keep my keep my fires burning. <laughs> I don't know why I just fucking rhymed there. It's well, I'm we not were talking about spinning. I'm not even stoned. I can attest, she's not stoned. I didn't. Well, I, I didn't see her take any bong hits. Exactly, and it's Usually been like a half not an hour. Case. So I know. Shocking, shocking news. Um, well, that seems like a good place to. Oh my god, I was gonna do the worst. My first, like, bring the wagon into the stable. Oh my god, like, okay. <laughs> if you were just about to say circling the wagons without knowing that I just watched Waiting for Guffman, <laughs> um, and if anyone is listening and doesn't know why that's funny, just fucking look up Waiting for Guffman circling the wagons. Yeah, you'll, you're, you'll, it, Thank us for watching Waiting Yeah, just like my bud tender did. um, This is our last final side note. If you tell your (laughs) 20-something bud tender at the weed store about about Christopher Guest movies, like Waiting for Guffman and Spinal Tap, they will thank you next time you go in for telling them about that. It turns out. We made friends. They're great people. Pro tip. Yeah. Wow. So. Well, we've spit enough hot fire in your ear holes for now. <laughs> good night, what the folk fam. Or good morning or good afternoon, good wherever the fuck, whenever the fuck it is. We love you. We'll talk to you again we soon. We love you. Bye. Bye. What the Folk is co-produced and co-hosted by Sarah Baranowskis and Joy Damiani. Sarah is based on the native lands of Arapaho, Cheyenne, Ute, and Ocheti Shakoan tribes known as Denver, Colorado. Joy is based on the native lands of the Cowlitz, Clackamas, Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde, and Confederated Tribes of Siletz Indians known as Portland, Oregon. Our guest on this episode has been Michael McPherson. Featured music on this episode has been I Don't Know Much About Star Wars by Joy Damiani. As always, if you appreciate what you've been hearing, drop us a five-star review, show us some love. We love you, you know? And all we can really do in, uh, in this world of ours right now is keep showing each other love. So until next time, what the folk fam, we love you. Don't let the apocalypse get you down.